all you leadership educators out there, and welcome back to Real Leadership for Real People, the NASPA SLPKC podcast, where we amplify true stories of leadership education. I'm your host, Kathy Guthrie, and I serve as a faculty member in the Higher Education Program at Florida State University. And I'm your co-host, V. Chanu, Assistant Professor of Organizational and Community Leadership at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. On today's episode, we are joined by Darren Pierre and John, John Oakstead, who will be sharing their thoughts on LGP student leadership learning. But first, let's do a quick check-in on what's been on our minds lately. Kathy, has anything in particular been taking up your attention recently? Oh my goodness. Well, you know, we just had this great conversation about painting with the group, with the people on podcast, because Darren just moved and is painting and I've been painting this week. And you know, it just, it was just as I was painting this past week, I'm redoing some rooms in a house. I've been thinking about just the interesting, if you think about how painting and making something anew and being able to be creative and innovative in a space. Um, I'm working on a house that's over 30 years old, which is really actually a quite new house when you think about it, um, that we're painting over some, right now I'm painting over a green wall. And as I said before, it's three coats of paint trying to get over this wall. But that was, I've had a lot of reflection as I'm painting over this wall, how this is sometimes we need the anew. We need to have new colors in our lives. We need to um, think about things from a different perspective. And so while it sounds silly that I've been painting and giving that time for reflection, it's actually been really therapeutic for me. And so I know that sounds silly that painting has been on my mind, but that's really real and how that, you know, reflects into other parts of my life. So, yeah, yeah. That's what I've been thinking about. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> yeah, also over 30. I could probably use a fresh coat of paint as well, depending <laughs> on who you ask. Uh, yeah, that's a good point too, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, well, to those ends, you know, um, uh, in, in the pre-show, we were also talking a little bit about allergies. And so <laughs> listeners, you, you may hear some of us like sniffle and cough. And I was thinking my, my partner has had a tickle in her throat for a couple of days now. And we're starting to pay a little bit more attention to the air quality index. Um, apparently over the oh. Midwestern United States, a lot of the particulate matter from the fires out West have been blowing across the entire country. And so even all the way out to the Eastern seaboard, the air quality has been highly variable and more dangerous this time of year than uh, typical. Uh, it, I, I was just in Florida where the air quality is a little bit better because they get the crosswinds from the Gulf of Mexico and the Atlantic Ocean. But when you're in a landlocked state, there's no crosswind to help get some of that out of the airflow that you're breathing. And so it's, it's, you know, it's concerning living under a pandemic and then wondering, is this an allergy? Is this air quality? Right. Am I sick? Like, and you just don't know, right? And there's no good way to sort of disentangle some of those kinds of things. So I know that this is the, as we're getting ready for the fall semester, this is the time of year where we have to remind ourselves to stop and breathe. Um, but the quality of that air matters too. And so yeah. as I've been thinking about my own like stress reduction and the proactive things I'm trying to do to get ready for the fall, I rejoined my gym after not going in uh, very many pandemic months, um, but still thinking about like, what is the quality of the air I'm breathing, not just taking time to stop and think, but the quality of those thoughts, not just um, taking time to stop and breathe, but the quality of that breath, right? So it's not just, am I doing the thing I know that's healthy for me? Am I doing it well? Um, mm -hmm. And that is a much, I think, harder question for me to answer, especially 
regularly as we as I do exactly what you just described, kind of renewing and refreshing for uh, a new academic year where things feel just as uncertain as they have um, for for probably far too long. Isn't that the truth? And and I do appreciate when we can stop and think about things that are happening around us and how does that relate um, to leadership learning and the context that we're in. And so maybe we should just jump into the topic because I am so excited about those who are joining us today. I mean, two incredible people who um, just wise, wise, wise and brilliant. And so love to welcome our guests, starting with Dr. Darren Pierre. He's a lecturer in the Office of Global Engineering Leadership at the University of Maryland College Park. Thank you so much for joining us, Darren. Thank you so much for having me. We're also joined by John Oakstead, who is a doctoral student of higher education at Loyola University, Chicago, and a higher education consultant. Welcome, John. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate being here. Great. Well, to get us warmed up, we've prepared a few questions to help the audience get to know you a little better. Um, your responses to these questions don't have to be lengthy, but they will help us um, get a bit of a sneak peek into your, into your lives. Uh, are you both ready to get started? Definitely. Let's do this. Great. Uh, so when you are alone in the car, is there a song that you love to sing? I think this is a fantastic question. I would say Whitney Houston's I Want to Dance to Somebody is in the car by myself with other people in a hotel lobby. It really doesn't matter where the space is. The I will sing that song happily. That song is pure joy. Oh, such a good choice. Um, so I was raised on music from the 70s and 80s. And so my go-to anything is always Fleetwood Mac. Anything Fleetwood Mac, I'm down. Um, but I would say, you know, if I'm driving around feeling good, maybe like Gypsy everywhere, Silver Spring, something like that. Um, just as always like a, a feel good for me as, I'm, you know, it kind of brings me back a little bit. Ah, nice, nice. Darren, I thought you'd say something like Luther Vandross or something <laughs> that nature. Mm, wow. Well, I'm so glad we're doing this for NASPA because Tiki Aiku, who is a yes. vice president at NASPA, I used to sing every Monday. We were in grad school together and every Monday we'd go to karaoke. And I would sing Luther Vandross because a house is not a home to Tiki Aiku. So that is our song together, no matter how long she is partnered, whether we get married or not, I will always have that song as her and I song so uh, so yes, Luther is there, Kathy. I love it. I love it. Well, the next question is, if you could only eat one food or meal for the rest of your life, what would it be? White chicken, jalapeno, enchiladas. Ooh! All day long. I would be good with that all day long. Nice. I'm going to follow John's lead, and I'm going to say tacos. Uh, that's that's great. Uh, I always get so hungry during these episodes because we talk about food. Um, last icebreaker, uh, who or what uh, first sparked your interest in leadership? I was always kind of a student council kid since I was little. So, um, but, you know, I definitely think my mom kind of instilled in us since we were very little um, to like to be in service to others. And so, I think I credit her a lot because even as I was a kid, getting involved in activities and things like that, it was always about a greater purpose um, and everything that you're doing was in benefit of others. So I definitely, I think I credit her 
what kind of sparked my interest in that. And then also the encouragement that I remember I was 14 and like the, the deal was either you get a job or you get involved. And so not because I didn't want to work, but, you know, I wanted to, you know, be involved in student council. I wanted to do um, activities at school. And so she was a big advocate for that, you know, even now in my life right now. I see leadership as a discipline. And I would say the person by far, I tell her all the time who really sparked my interest in leadership as a discipline is Susan Comavez. I was a student and she taught a leadership class and I wanted to audit it. And she said that she would only look, which I don't know who would want to audit a Susan Comavez class. That was me at my journey at that point in time. So she said the only way she would allow me to audit it is if I would write a chapter in the handbook for exploring leadership. And I was hopping and puffing because I was like, I don't want to do any work. Like, I just want to sit and listen. But the truth be told, it was the greatest invitation I have gotten because it sparked my voice as a scholar in this conversation. It sparked my understanding that leadership is a discipline. And it sparked, most importantly, is that leadership is an applied science that anyone can take part in. And, uh, and I think those are great lessons that have carried me through. I love that. Susan is good at that invitation, isn't she? I that I've learned a ton about that from her. Well, thank you both for sharing. Uh, you know, you have written this beautiful chapter and such an important piece on LGB student leadership learning in the recently published Shifting the Mindset, Socially Just Leadership Education. Can you briefly summarize this chapter to give our listeners a sense of what they can expect when they read it? Yeah, and I'll frame it in three ways, and then I want to offer John to share his thoughts and considerations about um, things that I may miss out. I would say it's three points. First is troubling our prototypes and assumptions about leadership and who is and who's not part of that leadership. I think within that is implicit leadership theory, which we talk a little bit about and explore in the chapter. The second is the considerations of human development. So how does um, identity development specifically um, sexual identity development play into this conversation as we relate leadership to identity uh, based and sexual orientation. And then the third area is considerations and I would say also reflections for practice. Considerations, we give you some direct thoughts um, to consider for implementing into your practice what we've talked about within the chapter, but I would also say reflection because this is an ongoing conversation. And I was so excited the way that you all framed this book that you separated um, sexual orientation from gender identity and expression. I think so often we take LGBT and put it all together in one umbrella, but the conversations, the journeys look different based on whether we're talking about sexual identity or gender identity and expression. And so I'm excited about people reflecting on what we share and then taking what we share and then moving the needle forward as we look at the future of conversations around LGB leadership development. John, things I left out. I think you nailed it on the head there. I think, I think it's so great. I think what we really try to focus on, right, was being practice ready in our approach that everything that we were discussing in our chapter can be put into practice, put into play, you know, in the classroom or on a college campus or in student engagement and, um, and doing our best to, you know, ensure that we're not looking at it as just as this monolithic group, right? That each experience of each different population is very different, but also have some similar strands in their experiences on a college campus um, and then in college and university life. So I think it's super important. And I'm, and I'm so glad that it's a great pairing to this 
chapter is also the, the chapter on gender identity and uh, trans students. I think that's so important that um, the, the incredible pairing together, and I'm really excited that um, our colleagues were able to write that chapter as well. Yeah, thanks so much to both of you for your contributions. Darren, it's it's always nice to hear uh, the positive feedback about our choice to disaggregate gender identity from sexual orientation. Um, that was very intentional on our behalf, and we couldn't have found really better people to speak to either of those journeys, whether it is you know your team here with us today and the folks who are able to write the other chapter for us as well. John, I, I appreciate you also foreshadowing uh, for us a little bit of that practical approach. Um, we're going to ask you more about it later, but before we get to that place, um, I was hoping that we could maybe take a little bit of a step back and maybe have each of you share a little bit more about how your lived experience Experiences. So these could be your in your personal life and your professional life, but how those lived experiences have shaped um, your understanding of leadership and the way leadership gets practiced. I share this often that one of my favorite quotes is by Maya Angelou, and she says that you know we belong nowhere, we belong everywhere. The price is high and the reward is great. And, you know, when I think about my own intersecting identities around my race, being Black, and my sexual identity, being gay, I really felt like I didn't fit anywhere. And then you layer that with Southern, and I really just didn't feel like I fit anywhere. And when you look at it in terms of leadership, and you look at the history of leadership education, and you look at the history of leadership and the great man theory, I certainly didn't feel like I fit into that. And so my journey with leadership education has really been unbridling my own considerations of who is and who isn't a leader. And I think it's those personal experiences of feeling like I fit nowhere, but knowing that I fit everywhere. Because LGB students are absolutely integral to leadership. Every movement, civil rights movement, women's rights movement, the movement of the Me Too movement up today, Black Lives Matter movement, have all had influences of the queer community. And so understanding that while I may not fit anywhere, where students may not feel like they fit anywhere, the truth is they fit everywhere. The price of showing up authentically is great, but the reward in doing so is high. And so um, I think that's how I personally connected to this conversation. And I think, you know, that's why I really enjoyed working with Taryn on this project that, you know, we have a lot of similar common grounds and some of our identities, but also are very different. He, you know, he's black, I'm white. Um, he's from the South, I'm from the Midwest. So I think, you know, our perspectives were different, but then also so aligned in a lot of different things of that being raised and told different ends of the country and our experiences. Um, and I think as part of that, going into this project, thinking about it was that trying to reflect back on my own leadership journey. And I think, you know, the saliency of my own identities have evolved as, as I've gotten older, right? And I know the literature shows that we know that, we talk about that. Um, and I think for me, you know, I was born in a small Midwestern city, very white, very straight, heteronormative in every practice, very conservative. Um, and in that process that as I've, you know, went through my education to now and, and, and working through this project, I think the saliency of my identity as being a gay man definitely came to more fruition that recognizing it more as a, as a value add. Um, and I think that's definitely a shift being a queer person of seeing the identity of being gay and being queer of being a value add to a project is unique and different. And that's not always the opportunity that you get. Um, so definitely in that process of being able to reflect back on my own experiences as a student leader in undergrad and grad school, 
um, and even before that of what that looked like. I think that definitely informed my thoughts as we were writing this chapter, but then also gave me meaningful reflection. How often do you get that awesome opportunity to have a reflection and look back and see how, how am I integrating that into practice and what does that look like? Um, and so, you know, in this, I've been able to think about, you know, how do I engage other minorities, uh, more minoritized uh, identities into the process, into the conversation, um, ensuring more than just me have a voice, right? That I, me sitting at a table, I'm a white man, there's a perspective around that, but then I have other identities of being a gay man and of recognizing that others are not at this table and how do I utilize my privileges to be able to incorporate others into the conversation that I think is so important. So definitely I think that's informed my practice, but also as part of this project is definitely, you know, I've definitely evolved in that and um, kind of honed in on those experiences. Oh, John, I appreciate that so much. And thinking about how we situate ourselves in spaces, but then in interaction and also our own development of identity. And while, yes, we know that our identities evolve and it's still when we're able to pause and reflect and then share that out, right, is where that change in practice can hopefully occur, right? That's what we're, the goal is, or it should be. But thank you for, for sharing that. If if you, and some of you have started talking about this, both of you, um, could you share from, if there's anything outside of leadership education that informs your thinking or approach to this work? I know Darren, you had talked about Maya Angelou, but are there other things that um, inform your approach to this outside of leadership education? I shared this at the top of the conversation, but I think the conversations on student development theory, I think are so married into this conversation. You know, Norhouse talks about leadership as a process. So is identity development. You know, I'm still coming into understanding about the identities I hold. Our students are on a lifespan journey to understanding their own identities. And so I think that uh, conversations on college student development theories is a great complement to this conversation on leadership. And I think, you know, to piggyback off that, I think, you know, I learn so much from my peers and other scholars that I, I think conversations like this, this is informs my practice and my thinking, right? And I think, I think not only that, but I also learning from my students, I think when I'm in the classroom or within leadership programming, that informs my practice, I think the most is seeing, is what I'm doing working, right? Do I see it in their eyes? Do I see it in their work? Do I see it in their excitement? I think that certainly is something that informs my practice, but also makes me a better, you know, leadership educator, a better scholar, a better instructor. Um, I think that's so critical to see. And, you know, when I look at it, you know, the youth today are the ones who are going to be our leaders, right? And taking, when I'm in the uh, long-term care facility, they're the ones making the policy decisions for me, right? So I really hope uh, that they had a really good experience with me as their, uh, their TA or <laughs> their undergrad instructor. Uh, but no, but really, uh, you know, that their experiences, I think, are so valuable and that how do they take what they're learning in a workshop and, you know, employ that in their work in student government and Greek life um, in the classroom. I think that's so critical and that definitely informs and, and shapes my thinking about the work that I'm doing and lets me recognize the value of that. Yeah, and it, and it is valuable, right? Like I think recognizing that for what it is is an important part of the process, both for our 
professional and personal growth and development, but also just as you said, right, the, the growth and development for our students. I've, I've heard it all too often said in student affairs circles that we plant the seeds of trees whose shade we'll never know. Um, but in some cases, we do know that shade, right? Like, John, I think you speak to that, you speak to that directly in terms of the young people that we're preparing for their lives and their community roles and their occupations will come back to haunt us, right? Like one way or another. And we hope that at minimum, we do no harm. And at best, we add value and we make those experiences richer, um, not because, not just because we personally might benefit, but because everybody among our contemporaries may benefit as well, right? As they make those decisions, as they carry out those plans, and as they continue to make hopefully positive and sustainable change. So going back to, I think, an earlier point, which is all of this is great and wonderful as long as it does something, as long as it means something practical. And I think one of you used the expression, you know, move, moving the needle. So I'm curious if you each would mind sharing a little bit about how you see um, your chapter as a piece of practical scholarship, which could be used to address the various crises on our campuses and in our society. I think, you know, when we look at the core truth of it, right, is that, you know, and I'm going to say this in a broad statement, but recognizing a chapter is just around lesbian, gay, and bisexual students, but LGBTQ students are still marginalized on college campuses. That's a, still a real fact. They still experience disenfranchisement, and they still have poor experiences and on a college campus, and, and the work being done by faculty and, and student affairs administrators and other administrators are critical to their success, right? And so, when I look at that, it's not like, you know, once we had gay marriage, it's all good and fine and dandy, right? And I think a lot of folks thought that and they're like, oh, you got your rights there for marriage, but it's not, right? And I think it's, you know, critical to look at of how can we support their student success, right? That, you know, whether that's in residential life, athletics, in the classroom, or even in alumni engagement, that being queer on a college campus from before they even come to campus to as an alum is so critical and how do we support them and how do we actually deploy things that are based in theory and support for these um, for these students and members of our community. So I think when I look at our chapters being you know a practical resource and practical scholarship, I think I think it it's it's a it's a value add, right? When we look at that of how can we look at our work differently and ensure LGB students are engaged um, on college campuses, but also meaningful support and meaningful engagement and that it, you know, it begins before they're even on a college campus. And I think that is so critical. And, um, you know, I'm sure we can talk, we can talk until it's blue in the face, but how important having, you know, student leaders feeling that support in that engagement is, is critical. Um, but I, I definitely see it as a value add that it's, there's still an uphill battle to support LGB students on the college campus, but um, I think this is helping and moving in that in that direction. We had a conversation at ALA about um, impactful practice versus best practices. And I think that there's some really strong things that educators can do to think about impactful practices. And I think that, you know, just because it worked in 1980, 1990, 2000, even in 2019, doesn't mean that it works necessarily the same today. And so continuing to trouble your practice, I think engaging in your practice in a critical way. And so, you know, if we take something like the social change model, well, take the social change model and overlay that with identity development and see how those two can work in partnership with each other. How is your work being informed by the energy of the moment? If you're coming into the same leadership practice 
after this pandemic that we are currently living in, then your practice is somewhere irrelevant because you're not engaging it in the ways in which it needs to be engaged today. Understanding that students are coming in with a sexual identity, but they also have a class identity. They also have a gender identity, a racial identity, an ability status. All those need to be in the conversation as well. So don't do things in silos. And one of the things that we talk about in the chapter, which I'm really excited about, is that representation matters. So why not have an Alice Walker, Audre Lorde, and others, a Harvey Milk, be part of your conversation in your leadership vernacular? not just in spaces around sexually minoritized identities, but in all spaces. Use Harvey Milk as a poster as you would the President of the United States and consider how you're utilizing those. And I think it's so great uh, what you all do with cultural relevant leadership learning because I think if people looked into that conversation, it could give them some greater considerations for how to practically engage their practice. In this conversation, we're talking about sexual identity, but we could intersect it with other identities or talk about other identities that are often spoken about in minoritized ways. Such brilliant considerations to get those on college campuses in co-curricular and curricular contexts. So where do you see this work going next? Right, so we have the practical aspect, but now how do we continue to move these ideas forward? I think one way is just continuing to remember that no group is a monolith. You know, I, I love the, the other night I was at dinner and we were talking about um, the term Latinx mm -hmm. and not everyone identifies with that. People want to trouble it, but we've utilized this term, uh, colonized it in some ways and said, okay, you're a Latinx. And we've never asked people, well, how do you identify? And so while we give some great considerations for thinking about the LGB community, understand that no group is a monolith. And so there are going to be things that we share that people may connect with and they don't. We're part of the community. There are going to be terms we use that people do and do not connect with within the community. But that's okay. So, the, so this is a starting point, but this can't be the ending point. And you got to honor that as we continue to progress in these conversations, continue to honor and celebrate that people are not a monolith. I think it's going to be one of those great future considerations. Well, and Darren, you had mentioned earlier about pandemic and these last 18 months and the energy of the moment. And that, I love that when you said energy of the moment, because it's true how energy is shifting right now. I'm observing how energy all around us and how we should be engaging in leadership learning has shifted greatly. And so when you think about, yes, this moment in time and how do we move these ideas forward, but how do we even continue as we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow? I mean, <laughs> and this is our biggest invitation. This is our biggest invitation that I think we have had. In the last two years, we have went through a pandemic that has upended the way we think about our work. And and, the, and this is just two things. So the pandemic and we have the first vice president where we use the sir, madam, before we speak their name. That's powerful. The invitation is there for us to grab and say, okay, well, can we do this differently? Can we talk about this differently? Can we think about this differently? And we could list 18 other things that have happened in the last two years um, that have also galvanized this opportunity to say, well, maybe we can Maybe we can, maybe this is our moment to do it. 
Yeah. And that tsunami that has hit us these last 18 months has, you know, hopefully we can find some positive from it, right? Invitation. John, what do you think? Anything about how to move these ideas forward? Yeah. You know, and I think um, when I look at it too, I think a big part of it is that a lot of the literature, when we look around LGBT, if I'm going to say LGBT students, most of the narrative has been around gay men, gay white men, right? And, that, and we've seen that in the history of queer literature, uh, you know, since the beginning of the gay liberation movement to now. And in the more recent years, more literature and more research has been done around trans students. However, it hasn't been until the last 10 years, five years or so that even the consideration conversation has been around these intersecting identities, right? That and kind of how Darren had mentioned is like how we recommend in our chapters this layering of different theories and different approaches, right? That we can't just take one approach that would work for a bisexual student or a gay student or a lesbian student that we have to look at the other intersecting identities and that there's not a lot of literature around that. And that's honestly a big gap in LGBT studies, right? And that in, in, in the research. And so I think that's critical to look at that of how do we get those voices recognized within the research, but also on the other end, to take it from the research then to practice. And I think that is something that's missing right now. There's not a lot. Um, and, you know, if we look at Ren or even um, as our um, another author of the chapter, Lang, when their recent work, when they did an, a, a deep dive to look at the literature, you know, in 2021, recognizing that's still a concern and need, that that is a gap that we're missing of these intersecting identities and the research around that. But I, you know, what ha what happens after the research, right, is that it moves into practice and that we are, you know, theory-based in our action, in our, in our work. Um, and so I think that's definitely where it needs to be going and where it should be going. Um, and then I see it after that, then it expands out from there, right, that it's in all the interactions of our work with students from prospective students to current students to graduates um, of the university. So I think it's something that we have to move that direction. Like there's no question we have to. Yeah, thank you both for, for sharing those thoughts. It's it's clear every time we we have one of these conversations or, or look at another, look at the chapters over again that this work is difficult, right? It's it's not easy, it's complex, it's complicated. And um, both of you are helping so many of us do exactly the kinds of things you're describing to continue to move our ideas forward, to continue to move our practice forward, to find um, that literature that does exist and to create it where it doesn't, to try to fill in as many gaps as possible and to uh, to take that invitation, Darren, as you as you put so so eloquently, that we have opportunities to do this now. And if it, if it's not going to be us, then who is going to do it? And if it isn't going to be now, when is going to be a better time to rethink our assumptions, all the things we take for granted, uh, all of the systems that had to mold and adapt to change to world events? There's in many cases no better time, and we'll never hopefully see such an instance again where everything was up for grabs, everything was negotiable. So many things that were uh, seemingly locked into stone before are all of a sudden fluid and flexible in ways we couldn't have possibly foreseen uh, two and a half years ago or three years ago or earlier in our in our, in our careers. Um, uh, once again, you know, continuing to to think about the future of this work, we we try to end on a somewhat optimistic note. And so I'm curious for each of you if there is something that protects your hope. Uh, for the future of socially just leadership education, what are the kinds of things that are, are protecting hope in that area? It's our, it's our students, our students. You know, I'm in this um, 
this class right now, uh, instructional design course here at Maryland, and there's faculty from every discipline at the university who are part of this instructional design course. And the consultant who's working with each of us individually, um, it, our next session is on anti-racist syllabus. And so she was sharing, you know, I don't know how the community is going to connect with this. And I said, well, here's the thing. I'm humble enough to know that it doesn't matter how I connect with it. What I know is that this is the conversation our students are having. Our students are having conversations about race. Our students are having conversations about sexual identity. And it is our students who are going to move some of these pendulums forward. When we look at the movements and the, the social unrest of 2020, it was white people with backpacks next to black and brown people with backpacks on the streets marching saying Black Lives Matter who are going home to their parents, who may feel a little bit uncomfortable, just like faculty may feel uncomfortable about an anti-racist illness. But they're there agitating those spaces at home with grandma, grandpa, mom, dad, aunt, uncle. And so it is our future uh, from the little kids in elementary school to certainly the adults that we have an opportunity to work with on our college and university campuses. They are where my hope stems from because to what you were talking about the earlier about the those who sit under the shade of trees that are seeds that we are planting now, those people, they are going to speak a different language underneath that tree than what you planted right here today. And that's that's some powerful and hopeful uh, work and consideration. Oh, such a good point. And I, I think for me, you know, conversations like this gets me excited and re-energized. Um, this summer, I just took a deep dive into the literature. I just finished my uh, PhD comprehensive exam and deep diving into the literature and seeing the evolution um, where part of it was looking at the historical aspects of LGBT college students um, post Stonewall and seeing the evolution of the language and of the work and of the practice. To me, that was exciting, but I, I, I think taking that it's you can read it on paper and you, you can you know read the statistics and read you know the theories behind it but i think seeing it in practice gives me life and excitement um i think also is you know the good people involved in this work it's all good meaningful people that want to see a change and want to be part of that and how can you not get excited about that and um and and i think for that 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 being together in community with folks of wanting more and wanting meaningful change um, is so important to my life. Um, and I think being with students, I think a, a big part of, part of that is actually seeing this work being done um, with young people and it, it gives me life and gives me excitement. And I think that's why I've been a, as my mother says, a, a chronic a schooler that, uh, I don't, I've hardly left school um, and I hope to be done eventually at some point. Um, but she always jokes about that of like, well, this is not, you're not gonna be really done, are you? Because I think within that, I, I think I need to be in that sphere and, and be in part of that environment. I think, you know, socially just leadership education, I don't think I had that as an undergrad. Um, I think there was certain administrators and student affairs staff that tried to implement that for me, but I don't think I really had that until I moved through my education and really have those key people that were really invested in that work. And I want my students to see me as invested in that part of that work. And that gives me energy and hope for the future. 
Uh, thank you both so much. I think ending on the what protects our hope is is key for us. But thank you both. And John, congratulations. That is huge. Passing. Thank you. Thank you. Say a prayer. Say a prayer. <laughs> no, just have to have to acknowledge thank that because that talk about a journey. So yes, we are cheering you on. We are cheering you on. But thank you both, um, John and Darren, for just joining us today. Your time and energy just is so appreciated um, and for accepting the invitation to have this conversation, right? As we continue to think about that bigger invitation that Darren had mentioned, but thank you both. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Thank you for having us. Please join us next time on Real Leadership for Real People, where we continue to explore socially just and culturally relevant leadership learning. Until then, listeners, keep it real out there. <laughs>